0: to do this. History. A window that provides us with a brief look back into time ancient people that changed the world to hopefully unravel the mysteries of ancient cultures and to learn about what people believed in and would most certainly die for is it possible to learn from the mistakes of others who made choices based upon these beliefs of so long ago and even accept responsibility for the horrors that they potentially inflicted upon people for generations to come for this is the history of religions and, of course, their gods. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. And, of course, thank you so much for listening. You know the heathen really does appreciate. So today, it's December 21st, and it's 2021, and this episode is number two of season four. In this episode, I am entitling Lost in Translation. I wish there was like some thunder and lightning going on behind that. But in this episode, guys, I want to discuss a couple of different topics. Number one, how the Hebrew scripture and the literature that we have from Qumran. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest surviving text that we have today that absolutely represents all the different factions of Judaism, and as far back as 500 to 700 BCE. That leads all the way up to the Antiochian Crisis, right up around the 160s of BCE. And how do they differ from the Greek Septuagint, right? And how some of those mistranslations may have ultimately affected storylines that were used by Mark. Matthew, Luke, and John are four canonical gospels, right? And then we will take a look at our earliest two manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. The well, there's four, but we're going to talk about two: the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Vaticanus, excuse me, which are dated sometime between three twenty-five as old as three sixty CE of the commoner. So before the final editions were completed, by the 400, that is, but how do these texts differ from the Bible translation that we have today? Especially the widely used King James Version. Did the stories get changed along the way with over 300 years of making copies? The answer is yes. And today we're going to discuss them all. And then number two, after everything that we have discussed so far, about Jews and about Christians of the first century. Why do the Jews not accept Christianity? And why do they still refuse to accept Christianity? So guys, buckle up and let's go see what is lost in translation. Christians all around the world, the Bible is the infallible and unchangeable word of God, written by him, and then eternally sanctified. Men writing inspired by God, influenced by God. But which Bible are we talking about? Because there are many different Bibles which contain different books within it. And the several differing translations of those books has changed their content as well as context over the centuries. Verses have been added. Verses have been removed. And even some modified to alter their meanings depending on who was intended for. Or to update it to current times. Some have been simply forged. Inserted new text for political and social reasons. Words which mean one thing in Greek can have a whole entire different meaning in Hebrew or vice versa and have been given entirely different meanings by the interpreters and the copiers, sometimes out of ignorance and sometimes out of design to spread their own message and many times is mistranslated words from Hebrew to Greek as well as Greek to Greek, which then cause a chain reaction of mistakes for this inherent word of God. Men inspired by God. Words that Christians all over the world take seriously without any understanding of the mistakes, the trail of mistakes behind it. Just like the game of telephone, we've all played this. You have to go back to the original text to see what the original author actually said and in what context. Unfortunately, we no longer have any of those texts, with exception to the Qumran Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that is, which date sometime between 500 BCE to 150 BCE, which we're sadly missing 500 years of Jewish scripture. Now, when the Bible has been edited to modernize its language for the purpose of making it more readily understood by its readers, the editors have used verses already modified from the original and modified them yet even further and again and again and again over centuries. Entire verses have been moved and footnoted, changing the meaning of the original, not only to make it more readable to modern eyes, but to reflect the opinions and beliefs of the editors, not the authors. You can see how this would change, right? Kind of like in the music industry. The original artist produces a song. A new artist some 20, 30, 40, 50 years later rewrites the song. It almost has an entire new meaning to it. Same thing as in movies or in plays when they're being modernized. Right? Dialogues changed and updated to suit a new audience. This is the same case with the Bible texts. And this has been done despite the scriptural admonition against changing One word of the biblical prophecy, a verse which has itself been changed, its meaning altered, until further editors decide to alter it yet again, leading modern day Christians to misunderstanding the original author's intent of his or her message. So now I want to talk about a few alterations that were made to the Bible and what its potential consequences were. We're going to start off light and easy with some basic ones and move into some of the heavy hitters, some of the fun stuff. Got to leave the fun stuff for the end, right? So here are several changes that were made to the Bible, which have been made over centuries, changing what is called by believers the inerrant word of the Lord into the inerrant word of man or men over centuries as they deemed necessary that I know most of you Christians are going to say, well, they were inspired by God, too. Anyway, so we're going to start off with the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 37, from the King James Version. Now, unfortunately, this confuses the readers on the requirement of baptism. And then in some versions, this verse is omitted entirely from 837. Now, let's take a look at it. So, in chapter 8, the apostle Philip well, he was basically preaching the gospel of Jesus to an unknown eunuch. And when the two came to a certain water that were told, the, the eunuch basically asked Philip, Doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip replied in Acts 8.37, and this is clear and, and important, And Philip answered, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip then baptized a the eunuch in the ensuing verses, after which Philip was spirited away into the sky and like a cloud, like most other apostles and disciples do, including Jesus. So that the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing in Acts 8.39 numerous later translations of the bible removed acts 8:37 entirely which others you know end up modifying the story now in the new international version for example in acts chapter 8 verse 38 it tells of philip basically stopping the chariot you know even putting on the brakes wooing the horses in which they were traveling and baptizing the eunuch without responding to this particular question at all it's totally omitted. The verse was removed in its entirety. Though in some editions, it's included as a footnote, stating that some versions of the Bible contain the verse. So, so for example, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New American Standard Version, and the Revised Standard Version all removed the verse from the King James Version, the type that King James had in it. And when the removal of the verse is not explained, it implies a change to the requirements for baptism, without delineating or explaining what those changes were. Then another one to look at is the biblical word count, from the original Hebrew text to what we have into the new versions of the Bible today, even though in the book of Revelation, threatens God's wrath upon man if any of those texts are altered. So, take that with you with a grain of salt, right? So, the word count of the complete Bible text differ. obviously between the different translations and sometimes within the editions of the same translation. Now, for example, one source reports the New International Version is containing 727,969 words. Another claims that the NIV's word count is as much as 726,109. The King James Version is 783,137. And then the the new KJV is reported by the same word count, sources containing 770,433 words. Obviously, many words have been removed, but different editions or versions of the Bible, which renders them the works of editors and scholars which prepared them. So why is this of any significance to us? Well, it should be some significance if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, that believes that the Bible that you have in your nightstand is the inherent word of God and that everything that it says is true and infallible. Then you need to listen to this. Because in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 19, it clearly reads, And there's different variations of it, too, which is also problematic. But this particular author that wrote the book of Revelation says, And if any man shall take away from the word of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, that would imply that everything within the Bible. If there's any changes, word counts, the change of a narrative, the wording, it should be punishable by death. God's death, second death in hell, right? Now it can also be argued that maybe this ominous warning from the Lord only applies to changes made in the book of Revelation in which it appears. But this is still problematic because there is clear modifications it's made, as well as additions and subtractions in the book of Revelation. So, there's a problem with that as well. So, how do you escape this? With all the changes and the edits, did the editors and the scribes, were they not aware of the book of Revelation by this time? Well, certainly, the book of Revelation has been um, transcribed over and over and over again for at least... um, What, a good 200 years, right? So that's an interesting point to take a look at and to consider if you are a believer that the Bible is of the Word of God and inspired by the Word of God. Are all these scribes going to hell? I would certainly hope so. Now let's take a look at the Amplified Bible because the Amplified Bible alterations also warn and threaten consequences to taking away from the texts of the Bible. And the same verse references the above, uh, the one that we just talked about in Revelations 22.19. It appears in the Amplified Bible, and so therefore, and if anyone cancels or takes away from the statements of the book of this prophecy these predictions relating to Christ's kingdom and its speedy triumph together with the consolations and the admonitions, which are warnings, pertaining to them, God will cancel and take away from his share in the tree of life and in the city of holiness, pure and hallowed, which are described and promised in the book. So the additions to the verses are easily seen and quite different. Obviously, the author is putting his own influence and his own ideas and his own theatrics into the verse. And the result is this publication of an opinion based not on the words of the original text, but on the beliefs of the editor and the scribe. Such changes to the source text are actually prevalent in all known versions of the Bible, including the King James Bible, which is known for the virulence of some of its defenders. Some of these claim that all other versions of the Bible are actually false, little more than forgeries. And that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible which should be used. And in doing so, they ignore the many errors of translation between the original source documents, as well as the clear insertion of additional verses many years after the original documents were written. And the Amplified Bible makes it clear that the book is intended to be taken literally, not figuratively. Now, one of the most intriguing Lost in Translations that we have actually occurs in the original Gospel of Mark, where Jesus gives Christians instructions. But these instructions come from an unknown author some centuries later. So, for instance, in the King James Bible, the Gospel of Mark, and let me remind you that the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel to be written, sometime around that mid-70s. But that original Mark that we have there's, there's like four, or several of them, actually ends at chapter 16, verse 20. And they went forth, and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now, most translations of Mark follow the King James Version, with varying verbiage for the verses of chapter 16, which closely follow the Gospel of Luke but they also appear to have been added by an unknown author or authors other than the guy that actually wrote Mark, based on the oldest known manuscripts of the work that we have. The oldest extant copies of Mark actually end at chapter 16, verse 8, not 20. Now that's a lot to add on. And there are numerous copies which indicate that the work, in fact, originally did end there even with the one that was written 300 years prior. And one is the Codex Synaticus, and the other one is the Codex Vaticanus. And so both of these are dated between 325 and 370. I believe the um, Synatic copy was 360 Common Era, and then the, um, the Vatican copy was 325 of the Common Era. Now in the original, or at least the oldest oldest copies of Mark that we have, Mark ends his gospel shortly after the crucifixion. Jesus' body is buried in the tomb, and then the two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, arrive at the empty tomb, and the heavy stone door has already been rolled away with the young man, not an angel or angels inside, but just a young man. But he told the women that Jesus has ridden, risen, and that he will meet the disciples in Galilee. And then he said, go tell them that I am coming. But instead, they run off scared and shaking, and they told no one. That's it. That is where the original Mark ends his story. They told no one. Jesus is simply missing from the tomb. And that's where it goes. And in Mark's mind, when he is writing this post- um, destruction of the temple and the city is leveled in his mind that is all that he needed to have to tell the narrative that the new God has risen replacing the old covenant and that's it it doesn't go any further than that there is no great commission whatsoever no instructions whatsoever his story needed to end with the Jews killing Christ and then Christ replacing the Jewish God. Now, as you can imagine, there are many theories out there regarding the ending of this dark, eerie, and mysterious gospel, where Mark ends abruptly after chapter 16, verse eight, as well as when these additional verses were even added, obviously some 300 plus years later, maybe longer. But according to the original author, There was nothing else to add based on his version of Christology in the 70s and who his readers were. They've already experienced the decimation of the city and the leveling of the temple. And they already understood all of the little puns and all the different little idiosyncrasies in his gospel and what the message was. And the message was clear. The additional verses that were added on subsequently after Mark was long dead and gone after a couple centuries describes what's called in the Christian world as the Ascension, which is actually a pretty major piece of the entire Jesus story in later days, and are included in the KGV version without any subsequent commentary, such as that the texts were added later by an unknown author. Though many newer translations did contain notes pointing out that there was an unknown source of the subsequent verses after 16.8, but many of them just added in arbitrarily without even any question, or directing the Christian reader that, hey, these weren't in the originals. My Bible hub, for instance, even does say um, that it was added on later. But much of the later verses, it refers to the criteria for how to obtain salvation, which differs elsewhere from the Bible, proselytization, and of course, the Great Commission, the command from Jesus to go out and preach that his life is the world and the only way to achieve salvation was to him, to every living creature in the world. The Great Commission is to many fundamentalists their prime directive in life, to get as many Christians on board as possible. Now, unaware that it was a later addition to the gospel and of unknown origin, but Christians will perform some mental gymnastics in order to make sense of it all such as the later editions, that that scribe that added to it later was influenced and empowered by God. And in my opinion, as we've been discussing, Mark, in great detail over several weeks now, I think it's very clear that this author's original intent was to simply destroy those Jews who had caused the destruction of Jerusalem and the leveling of the once-so-sacred Holy Temple. God's house. And I believe, as well as other historians believe, that Mark wanted to condemn those who revolted against Rome in the first Jewish Roman war, while making sure that it never happens again, even though it did, and it did, and it did and a few more times after that. But Mark's entire gospel, it is a sociological and political treaty that condemns the Jews so much to the point of Jesus only appealing to pagans and Gentiles and to forget about the old Jewish traditions, the old Jewish ways, the Old Testament. That Jesus represents the new covenant now, not the old. The old covenant is not good anymore. Those those temple sacrifices aren't good anymore to get on the right hand of the father. And in a sense, Jesus kind of replaces Yahweh, who is conveniently never even mentioned in Mark's gospel, other than father and Abba, very generic terms. So I believe that during the crucifixion narrative, he is the son of God, the God of the Jews. And he dies while the Jews picked Barabbas, who was in fact represented who represented the Jewish generation of rebels and thieves. That's right. Barabbas represented the Jewish generation, the wicked generation of rebels and thieves that Mark talks about throughout the entire gospel. Josephus, the Roman historian, the Jewish Roman historian, even refers to the wicked generation, while Mark simply made comparisons to Satan and demons whenever referring to those Jews. The Jews picked Satan, Barabbas, and the God of the Jews, Jesus died. So to this author from Mark, all he wanted is for the God of the Jews to be no more, and for the Jesus to return to preach to the Gentiles. And that's where he simply ends his story. In fact, it gets even stranger than that when you look closer to his gospel, because everything that he does in his mission is copying Titus Caesar's military campaign against those wicked Jews that begins in Galilee at a major sea battle where his soldiers literally become fishers of men and ends at the fall of Jerusalem where Mark details out his Jesus doomsday prophecies as we've talked about numerous times in Mark 13. In essence, to Mark, Jesus is Titus Caesar of Rome who destroyed the Jews. Now I'm guessing that when Mark um, just has Jesus rise again and meet with his crew in Galilee, it's simply gone full circle. And now Titus is the king of the Jews as well as the pagans. And he literally is the son of God. His father Vespasian who was deified as God. Now, I know that one's pretty far-fetched and full of conspiracy, but go back and listen to the episodes on Wars of the Jews and Mark that uh, we did previously. And it ties it all together into a nice bow for you, and you can either accept it as it is, or you can look deeper into what Mark was absolutely trying to convey to his audience at the time. And it's actually really pretty freaking interesting when you look at it that way. But there's another one to take a look at, and it's the changes to Matthew and the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer first appears in the Byzantine text, which is much, much later than commonly believed. Now I want you to keep in mind, Mark, and I'm going to keep referring back to Mark, because he wrote first. Again, Matthew wrote about 10 years later. And then in Mark, remember, there is no Lord's Prayer, and there is no Great Commission. There is no Great Ascension, and there is no detailed announcement out to all the Christians of the world to go out and recruit more Christians, Right? None of that's in there. So, even in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer is non-existent. So this prayer, it's known as the Lord's Prayer, and it appears twice in the Gospels, and in differing variations, if you would, and it's found only in Luke, and it's found in Matthew. Keeping in mind of the dating, Matthew, again, is writing sometime between 85 and perhaps as late as 90, and then with Luke coming in as as early as 95 and as late as 100. So now, commonly among Protestant congregations, the prayer also includes what is called the doxology. We all know this one. It's the one that I learned and I was raised Lutheran. And it goes like this. And for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so it ultimately appears in the King James Version. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 13. Now the differences between Matthew and Luke are. Matthew's version is much longer. And it continues with a request for debts to be forgiven in the same manner as people have forgiven those who have debts against them. Forgive me, I forgive you. But in Luke, on the other hand, he makes a similar request about sins being forgiven in the matter of debts being forgiven between people. This is clearly a human insertion of opinion and feeling. Not a God intervening between humans, telling them what to write or where to make changes or or edits a hundred years later after the fact. So obviously, knowing when Luke comes in, more than likely the um, editor um, or the scribe made that insertion sometime around the early 5th century or perhaps um, even a little bit later, and to make it feel fluid, obviously, added it into Luke. And then ultimately, sometime later, someone wanted to make all um, all of the synoptics include it. And so it was obviously ultimately added to Mark much, much, much later. So we have fluidity between the Gospels. So this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, does not appear in the oldest known manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew that we have, dating into the 4th century. And it appears to have been inserted into the gospel by an unknown writer, or scribe, or editor, since the subsequent verses are out of whack and out of number, or out of order. So more than likely, the Lord's Prayer is a fourth or perhaps fifth century interpolation, which is clearly invention. Now keeping in mind that Mark has no clue what the Lord's Prayer is, and Matthew copies Mark almost verbatim, with exception to some personal alterations of his own. But those are the originals. So the Lord's Prayer that Christians recite in church every Sunday, every Sunday morning, they're reciting a 4th or 5th century interpolation by an unknown scribe. Not by a Saint Mark or a Saint Matthew, anybody apostolic. Then Luke may have seen it maybe in a, you know, a copy of Matthew and used it since he borrows so much from both Gospels. But we already know that's impossible because Mark... And Matthew didn't use it. More than likely, Luke didn't use it either. Because it's not in there. So, more than likely, Luke also suffered the same violation of interpolation during the early Christian manufacturing and production of literature. Now let's move on to another subject let's talk about the controversial history of the King James Bible that sometimes creates some doubt on whether it is in fact a reliable source for the Word of God. Those who defend the King James Bible as an inerrant Word of God actually miss a pretty important point. It was never intended to be so, guys. The Bible was actually commissioned by the British king after he convened the Hampton Court Conference in the year 1604 where problems with earlier English translations, which were contrary to the Puritan sect of the Church of England, were actually being discussed. But following the discussions of the meeting at Hampton Court, King James directed the translators to ensure that the new Christian Bible, which would be known as the Authorized Version, because it would be the only Bible allowed to be read in British churches, churches of England, would conform to the new Ecclesiastic policies of the church of england now the church of england it depended greatly on ordained clergy and a hierarchical structure that did not exist at the time in the translations that they had and so they altered their new bible accordingly to make it fit so the king james bible it was never intended to be the inerrant word of god but instead the basis of the authority of the Church of England and the monarchy of England as the Church's rightful head. And King James also ordered the translators to use as referential starting points and style guides to two existing English translations, the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible, both of which were problematic for the Puritans. Other existing Bibles which could be referred by the translators were required to be on a list that was only approved by the king, and the king only. And as a little bit of trivia, the Geneva Bible, it was translated by English Protestants while in exile in Geneva during the reign of Queen Mary. Now let's talk about some of the early criticism of the King James Bible, because it shows a lot of inaccuracies in the translation from earlier texts, being of the Hebrew Bible as well as the Septuagint. Now, when the King James Bible was being written, it was done so by committees. Picture that. With six committees translating assigned portions that were given to them. You can imagine this, right? Probably a a big conference center of some sort and bringing in all these different editors who would translate the Bible from one language to another. And the majority of the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew, with some sections that were actually in Aramaic, an older language spoken by Jews. And the New Testament was translated from Greek, and books of the Apocrypha from Latin and Greek. Existing English Bibles were used as references as well. All of the committees worked not for a word-for-word translation of the source documents, but from the view that the source documents were to be used to support the eschatology of the Church of England. This approach delivered significant differences between the resulting King James Bible and the Latin Vulgate Bible, as well as the existing English translations that we have today. So let's dig into this a little bit. The highly esteemed English scholar, the Hebrew language expert, for his day, was Hugh Broughton. And Hugh roundly condemned the approach that was taken by these Bible translators and the completed work he called inaccurate, calling it an an abomination of translation that was foisted upon the English people. And then we have Thomas Hobbes. Thomas compared the new English translation unfavorable to the Latin. And in his critical works on Statecraft Leviathan, the title taken from the book of Job, he used biblical chapter and verse references from the Latin Vulgate instead of the King James Version, which often did not correspond at all. Now, King James ordered the printing of any other Bibles in English suspended, no more, ensuring that the authorized Bible's use would be increased, being his version. Now, these mistranslations found in the King James Bible, well, they go on and on and on. The writers of the King James Bible, guys, they had access in several cases to the original source documents, all the literature that they needed. But they chose instead not to use them while producing their new Bible, relying instead on earlier translations by other scholars and existing English Bibles that were filled with errors scribal mistakes. To these, they changed or added verses in order to achieve the goal that was mandated by their king. Old Testament verses were taken from existing English Bibles, including the Remish New Testament, where Christ quotes the scriptures himself, which they were told explicitly to not use as a reference, which they were subsequently criticized for in the preface of their finished work. And in the Old Testament passages, they altered them. They altered them from the original Hebrew. They even altered them from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, in order to support a more Christian theology and tradition. Well, talk about that. Let that sink in. The King James Version altered the Old Testament to make it fit, like, for instance, the um, nativity scene found in Luke and Matthew that does not exist anywhere in the Old Testament. And we'll get more into that. So let's take a look at an example here. And I'm gonna start off by using Psalms 22, Psalms 22:16 16 to be exact. But before I get into this particular one, I wanna talk about, if you remember, and you've been following along in the podcast, you know that Mark who wrote first while writing his Passover narrative, um, the, the whole crucifixion narrative, pulls directly from Psalms 22 which is all about Jews in general and King David, if you would. But here's an example. And the Hebrew text reads, A pack of villains encircled me like a lion, my hands and my feet. Now the translator changed the passage to read, They pierced my hands and my feet. Why? To adhere to a more Christian theology and belief, implying that, Jesus' piercing of his hands and his feet to the cross were actually foreseen and prophesied in the Old Testament. Mark actually uses the entire Psalms 22 for his crucifixion narrative. Check it out, word for word, actually. They also went as far as to change the titles of the books of the first and the second Estras, renaming the Old Testament books instead Ezra and Nehemiah, respectively changing the third and the fourth estras to the first and the second. Now, the changes to the text of the Hebrew Bible, known to Christians as the Old Testament, were actually relatively subtle in comparison to the creativity that was applied to the New Testament, in which several verses were simply added, with some inserted in existing Gospels in order to confirm their place in others. Also, the New Testament's translation in the King James Version sometimes isn't even based on ancient text at all. Matter of fact, they don't even know where it came from. So, for example, the chief source for the writers of the King James Version of the New Testament was actually a Greek edition by Theodore Beze, which included a Latin translation of the Gospel as well. A later noted biblical scholar, his name was Frederick Scrivener, noted 190 instances where the scholars working on the King James Version deviated from the Greek and Latin text and opted instead to use existing text from other English translations instead of the originals that they had. And then Scrivener also noted numerous incidents, more than at least three dozens, where the resultant English text had no supporting Greek text from which it was even translated. In other words, the King James Version contains many verses which do not appear in any of the translations of the original Greek. They were simply invented on the fly. And with closer scrutiny of the original documents, or rather the oldest surviving manuscripts of the books of the New Testament that we have, actually confirms that many of the verses in the King James Version have no supporting source material whatsoever, hence their omission or reduction to footnotes in subsequent versions of the Bible. And supporters of the King James Version argue that such revisions in itself is an abomination, since to them King James Version is simply a translation of the Word of God from its original ancient languages. And that's the kind of apologetics that we'd expect from any type of Christianity, right? But in fact, the King James Version is a conflation of several different Bible translations from more than at least a dozen languages, compiled by 47 men in six committees. Now let's talk about translations of the words and the printing accident that caused the 17th century printer to accidentally print the mistake, Thou shalt commit adultery. Well, I like it. I agree. But a primary motivation for the translators that were preparing the King James Version of the Bible was actually about readability by their fellow English citizens, as well as the flowing sweep of the language when passages of the Bible were being read aloud from the pulpit. Now, during the manufacturing and the production of the King James Bible, spelling and punctuation were often changed. However, by the printers who were printing them out who altered the spelling of words or omitted punctuation marks just in order to maintain the integrity of the columns in which the volume was actually printed. Now, the first release edition in 1611, it had been carefully said in type. Later editions found printers who were less concerned with what would one day be called quality control, and punctuation, capitalization, and even the omission of words and phrases became commonplace. So here's what happened. In 1631, printers Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, who had printed the first edition of the authorized King James Version Bible, made the printing error which cost them their license as the royal printer, as well as a fine that was equivalent to about seventy-five to $100,000 today. So here's what they did. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, they omitted the word not and ended up printing, Thou shalt commit adultery. Now as you can imagine, an outraged king ordered that all copies of the misspelled book be seized and burned, and the possession of the Bible became a crime. But a few copies survived into the 21st century. While not all misprints and similar errors were obvious, the incident illustrates how simple misplacement of a single word can change the entire meaning of a commandment from God altogether. Now, let's look at another one that might hold some major interest to us. And it's the Septuagint in the Hebrew mistranslations that could hold some serious insight regarding the Virgin Mary narrative, as told through, what, Matthew and and Luke, and even Mark um, refers to her as well. But the text of the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek more than two centuries before the commoner. Meaning that most of the Old Testament books were actually available in Greek long before the New Testament was ever even imagined. And the Greek translation is known as the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint is generally agreed upon by multiple scholars as containing numerous errors of translation based upon poorly understood Hebrew. And ultimately, the translators allowed several Hebrew words to be used incorrectly. And even interchangeably, when their meanings in the original were very different from what was translated into. Now, one of these is the Hebrew word Alma, which was translated into a Greek as meaning virgin. When, in fact, it refers to a young woman in the original text. Betula is the word that they should have used if they want to use virgin, being the Hebrew word that refers to a woman who was pure, that of a virgin. So that was a mistake. So what makes this interesting, even more interesting, is that both Mark and Matthew pulled heavily from the Septuagint verses the Hebrew text for verses that would support their version of the Christology in their gospel. So already they had the wrong word in their mind. They were imagining that this would be a virgin woman. Now had these guys been able to read and understand Hebrew, the Mother Mary narrative never would have been imagined in the first place. Now, unless you want to include the woman named Mary who ate her infant child during the siege of Jerusalem, as told through the words of the Jews by Josephus, in which Mark pulls extensively from, it's possible that he may have been inspired by that verse in the Septuagint, accidentally understanding it as a virgin woman, but made it symbolic with the woman who ate her child in reality in order to achieve salvation. Now, here's an interesting thing that Josephus writes when he's talking about this woman. Now, keep in mind the reality here. Titus and his army built a ginormous wall around the city and its temple and cut the inhabitants off from food and water. The Jews were literally eating their dead. And this is confirmed by multiple historians, not just Josephus. But what this woman says to her child right before cutting his throat is of major significance to us. If in fact Mark did build this Mary off of this woman, it's going to be very interesting to look at even deeper. There might be a whole other underlining story. And this is what she says to her child. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious violets. Josephus referring to the um, rebelling Jews, of course. And be a myth to the world, which is all that is wanting to complete the calamity of us Jews. End quote. So this verse that Matthew uses was actually taken from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. That prophesies the birth of Emmanuel to a virgin. And if you remember, Emmanuel simply is Hebrew for God is with us. I actually have a little robot um, vacuum cleaner that goes around the house and I call him Manny which is short for Emmanuel, so God is literally cleaning my house. <laughs> but this is quoted in the first chapter of Matthew, describing the virgin birth of Christ, which is one of the basis of Christianity. But again, Isaiah uses the Hebrew word Amma, meaning simply a young woman, rather than batulah meaning a pure woman. Then Matthew quotes the virgin birth as being the fulfillment of the prophet, the delivery of the Messiah. But the translation is wrong. The word Amma appears only once in Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 14. But the word Batullah appears five other times in the book, and each time clearly in reference to a virgin, as seen in Isaiah 23, 4, 23, 12, 37, 22, 47, 1, and again in 62, verse 5. So, accepting the mistake and the error in the Christian tradition... The translation into Greek remains the source of the description of the prophecy being fulfilled of the virgin birth. It is not, however, apparent in the original Hebrew. Now, the problems that we have with the King James Version of the Bible and lost in translation actually begins in the beginning. Actually, the very beginning in the creation story. And when the creation story translated directly from the Hebrew text, it gives the King James Version of Genesis a whole new meaning. Now, the first verse of the King James Version of the Bible reads, in quotation, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now, the original Hebrew does not contain the definite article, the, and in fact pluralizes the word heaven to heavens. It also includes, when correctly translated into English, the word had. And therefore, the verse should be read like this, the way that the original Hebrews had intended it. In quotation, In a beginning, God had created the heavens and the earth. Now, this translation contains several implications when implied to the verses which follow, since it clearly states that the earth, and indeed the universe, had been created at an earlier time. Now, whether the translators of the King James Bible deliberately altered the meaning or perhaps translated it incorrectly out of lack of knowledge of Hebrew, it is a subject of heated debate and speculation. Now, the same cannot be said of the second verse of Genesis, which refers in the King James Version to the earth being, in quotation, without form and void, which is a reflection of Calvinistic views of the earth being chaotic and shapeless. But the Hebrew word that's translated as meaning without form is tohu, which does not mean what the KGV states it means, but rather refers to the consequences, as in the consequence for sin. A word-for-word translation from Hebrew into English changes the verse to read, And the earth had become waste and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The basis of the mistranslation of the second verse was based largely on the mistranslation of the first verse of Genesis. So let's talk about another one. You might even say it's a big one. Giants. The word giants, giants in the earth could be an enormous mistranslation that rewrites many of the Bible stories, would it not? If the word for giant was actually misused? Think about it. (laughs) Lots of stories of giants in the Bible. But the word giant actually appears a multiple times in the King James Version of the Bible. And nearly every single time, implies to people of enormous size. Like serious, big, monstrous people, as you would imagine. Like the story of David and Goliath, right? Or like those guys on the Game of Thrones, those, literally, that is what they're imagining in this particular story. But when the Hebrew word so translated, does not refer to size at all, but it refers to character, or stature, or rank, right? Your your hierarchical status. One example of this is in the book of Job. When that symbol of extraordinary patience laments, and the quotation goes, he breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. Now, the English word giant is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word gibber, which more accurately translated means a mighty man or perhaps a mighty warrior, person of great rank and stature. The word appears accurately translated in Genesis and an indication of the problem input into the King James Bible by its manners of creation as opposed to influenced by God. So now I guess I challenge you to go back and reread everywhere it says giant in the Bible. And now understand that we're not talking about big monsters, that we're talking about people of rank and stature, great warriors and what have you. So it changes the Bible stories immensely, multiple times. That is, <laughs> it's not only as an invention, but it is incorrectly invented And we come to another problem because not all of the committees which were responsible for producing the text and the translations for the different books of the King James Bible were even qualified or or even actually staffed with people of equal ability and knowledge of those ancient languages to properly even translate. Why are they even there? Often nuanced words of Hebrew which had at one time become nearly extinct were improperly translated and swapped out. And when confronted with the Hebrew word of which the committee had insufficient knowledge of, well, the corresponding English word in the existing English translations that they had was changed out. And that word was ultimately wrong and misused. So the technique meant that some books, the correct Hebrew meaning was achieved, while in others, an incorrect and prevailed meaning was achieved and still prevails, which in return alters numerous stories from the author's original intent. Now, newer translations, which strive to be more reflective of the original Hebrew and Greek, detract from the King James Version, causing its celebrants to claim they are distorting God's inherent word. Now, let's take a look at another one. This one's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and verses 7. Now, written in the King James Version, it reflects the monarchy's message to its people. Being king is a divine right. It's obvious that the necessity of these translators of the King James Bible was ultimately to please the monarch who commissioned them. This is hugely evident in Isaiah, which in chapter 9 contains two verses which read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. End quote. Now, the Hebrew word mistranslated as government actually means power. To have power. That's it. And it appears nowhere else in the Old Testament besides in these two verses. Now the verses as mistranslated, it supports the concept of government to be assumed to be the rightful burden of kings on their thrones. This is a, a straight up power play by the king. King James, that would be. And the monarch at the time, of course, got to enjoy it. But the verse correctly translated substitutes the word power for government and places it firmly upon the shoulders of the child born, with that power increasing forever, which also promotes the lineage of blood, right? The bloodline of kings. Now, the writer of Matthew and its King James Version Translator correctly summarizes the two verses of Isaiah, which are served to support the divine right of kings. Now, divine retribution. Now, in the form of punishment, it was a favorite theme of John Calvin, who was a fan of delivering punishments himself whenever the opportunity arose. His influence on the Geneva Bible actually led to a mistranslation, which was repeated by the translators who were producing the King James Version. And we see this in Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 19. The King James Version reads, This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. Now the use of the word punishment first appears in the Geneva Bible. And is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word meaning, not punishment, but to sin. The Bishop's Bible changed the wording to read, the plague of Egypt and all nations. Now, the translators of the King James Bible actually accepted the Geneva Bible's version of that verse here. Which, if correctly translated from Hebrew, reads, This shall be the sins of Egypt and the sin of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Clearly an altogether different meaning from the Calvinistic view expressed by the mistranslation. But the verse indicates something different, doesn't it? With the mistranslation, the verse indicates a vengeful and punishing God. A view expels by Calvin and his followers, but not by the writers of the verses in its original language, that of Hebrew. And even in Luther's German Bible, contained the correct word for sin. Even in German and as did the Latin Vulgate in Latin. But they were not influenced by the Calvinistic views which affected much of the Protestant theology in England at the time. Let's talk about another one here. I know some of these are pretty cool and some of them are kind of duds, but this one's all right. So this one is about the King James Version where there's verses about Jesus and the mistranslations actually show the views of the translators and their ideas and their thoughts and their feelings rather than that of the original authors of the New Testament. Now, according to the King James Version of Matthew, specifically in verses 4-5, that reads, Then the devil taketh him up to the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now, this is a mistranslation which reflected the views of the translators, rather than that of the original authors of Matthew. Now, in the Latin Vulgate Bible, It used the word paniculum to describe the rooftop of the temple, which had no steeples or pinnacles, as did the church of the 17th century England. It was flat. The proper translation from Greek text would read on the corner of the roof rather than a pinnacle, as we would see in 17th century England, which implies an elevation above the roof itself. This is clearly the thoughts and desires and the feelings being expressed from somebody who's writing in the 17th century and changing the words as he desires because that's how he sees churches not flat rooftops come on now although the change is relatively insignificant in terms of its reflection on the meanings of the verse it does however indicate that the influences besides the source documents and the previous English translations that they used were included in the King James Version by its translators. For example, think about it. Spires, steeples, stained glass windows, church towers, they were actually part of the environment during the time of the King James translators. But nothing like that existed during the original writers of the Gospels. There were nothing like that in the year 70. They used people's houses, flat-roofed buildings that they could find, That their translators' religious views and their beliefs in what a proper house of worship should contain and what should look like was included in their work. And it's evident from such small changes found in the King James Version, adding information which was not contained in the original text by alterations both large and small. All right, let's use this as a stopping point for the King James Version. We get it. There's a ton more. And I think we understand what was happening in that Bible of 1611, right? Um, it was all about monarchy. It was all about the kings. It was about the, um, the, 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 the bloodline of kings. So it was clearly supported by changing verses around to reflect both the Christology and bloodline of kings in the monarchy in England. So now let's talk about some more interesting stuff. So how do Bible translations differ from the original Greek? Such as the 10-year difference in Jesus' birth between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And then adding to Mark's abrupt, dark, strange, weird ending. Adding on an ascension and delivering the Great Commission to all Christians that wasn't there before. But let's first talk about that nativity story. That is basically a biblical Frankenstein's monster. As it pulls freely from both, pulls a little bit from Matthew here. Then it pulls a little bit from Luke over here. Crosses them over, mixes them up. And these guys, remember, they contradict each other on just about every single point. And they put this thing into a big story into a big freakish news story that's played out every single Easter. As a matter of fact, I played in many of them when I was a kid. Now, there's a traditional verse, and it's read at every single Christian Easter play. Every single year, and usually at the church auditorium, or actually inside the church. I know, because I've played in it before. But it comes from Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where basically an angel and a bunch of heavenly hosts. I suppose even more angels appear and fill the sky, and they basically lead some shepherds to Jesus' manger, where the angel says, in most translations, such as in NIV and King James, what have you, and the quote goes, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, which is all fine and dandy. It really sounds nice and very peaceful for sure. However, the original Greek text that come from the earliest manuscripts that we have, it uses a different word that basically, it's basically off by one letter. Just an S that dropped off by the scribe. So the word that was used was dokius. But the scribe accidentally dropped the S from dokius and made it "dokia." So the actual line goes like this, the way that it was intended by the original author. Peace on earth among men of good will. End quote. So this, as you can see, it's a little different, right? The fourth century text that we have in Greek is basically it's saying those who only God likes will, in fact, receive peace. And everyone else can just go fuck off. <laughs> but all just because an S dropped off of one word. It changes the entire theme of the verse. So, and now that error is read in every nativity scene that has been copied and copied and copied over and over and over again, proliferating the inerrant word of God as a mistake. Then we have the epistles, which are letters that are written by Paul out to his churches, to his congregations. I think an interesting one to look at is, 1 Corinthians 14, where he basically says that all women should remain silent in the churches. For it is the law, God said so. Christ told him in a vision, although it's not, and that they are not permitted to speak, and that they have any questions to ask their own husbands when they get home. Don't talk in the church, you're not allowed. Cover your heads. So this line, this particular exact line, is an interpolation that a scribe placed there himself and centuries later. And why would Paul say such a thing? Just a few verses earlier, he's actually giving instructions for men and women and how they should speak in church. It's quite the contradiction, is it? So it doesn't fit the context at all, you see. However, this theme can carry over into a second century forgery known as 1-2 and Timothy, where this author, not Paul, obviously, was truly a misogynistic prick. So Paul never conveyed this feeling about women in his churches. Never. Never once. So whoever inserted this line just wanted to express his own views clearly. I can see this guy. He's a scribe. He's sitting in there and he's writing Paul's letters over from the original, or at least the Greek that he had, over into his version that he's translating. And he wants to stick at the women in there. Because he's a, what? A misogynistic pig. Or I think I said prick earlier. We'll go with he's a misogynistic prick. Furthermore, we even have manuscripts. Where a senior scribe during medieval times. Noted in the footnotes of the Bible. That the passage did not belong there. Yet, we still have it. So this is a perfect example. Of where people think the Bible says one thing when it actually doesn't, or wasn't supposed to. Now let's take a look at something else that Paul gives us. And he brings us to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, where he basically says, in quotation, I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors, his, dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have cut her hair off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have cut her hair off, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So yeah, perhaps a little sexist, but let's continue to the verse. Let's see what it says. And I begin, quote, Man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image of God and the glory. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. You know the whole rib thing, Adam and Eve. But neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, the whole Adam and Eve story being employed here. But it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. (laughs) I'm not even sure what that even means. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So I guess that's a little bit better, and definitely not what this Interpolator would like to have Paul say. So here, Paul is making the argument against that rhetoric that degrades women. So he was actually sharing some pretty feminist views in his time. He was actually rather radical. Now this Interpolator's sentiment was added much, much later, when the church started to fall back into some of its more oppressive ways with respect to how women should be treated such as the the reason the axe of Thelka was burned by Tertullian that held some very feminist views. But what about those angels? What in the hell was that all about? Well, one view is that Paul used a piece from the Old Testament where literally male angels would descend down to the earth and have sexual intercourse with human women. Then as a result, their children would become giants, which was synonymous with demonology, as seen in 1 and 2 Enoch. So when women having long hair in church obviously attracted these horny rogue angels. So in order to create some sort of subterfuge, they had to cover their heads to provide some additional protection from these horny demons, who also joined Satan in his rebellion. In fact, early Christians even imagined these dark, horny angels even living among them, meddling in their affairs, and causing problems. And they, and they can imagine them sitting in the church pews right next to them. Perhaps the men imagining the demons having sex with their wives. So I also know some Christians today that also think this way, that there are demons and devils and Satan himself living among us. And, you know, I wish I could help them out. That's kind of the reason why I'm putting the show together. But the New Testament writers also employed these traditions into their gospel narratives as seen whenever Jesus cast demons out of people. Of course, those narratives also carried and served as a heavy anti-Semitic theme. As well as we discussed in the last season, right? Making a connection to demons with the Jews. Cool, huh? Plus, there is actually a ton of sexual demonology that we can find in the Talmud. That Jews are obviously obsessed with. And as an example, go back and listen to the Lilith episode for sure. Another view is that in early Christianity, believers thought that angels would and could descend down from heaven and sit alongside them in congregations during prayer. So Christians really imagine these angels attending the service and listening to the prayers. Typically, they would be invisible, or sometimes maybe even in disguise. But some believed that seeing a woman's hair, or even cleavage, would be considered highly offensive to some of these angels. Oh my God, look at her hair! Hmm. But the thought was that if the angels were pissed about the hair, they might not stay and stick around and and listen to the prayers, and not take the prayers back to God to, to be fulfilled. So perhaps they could fulfill some more mundane prayers, such as finding house keys or something along those lines. So looking back again, because this is the big one, in Mark chapter 16, where we have literally multiple endings. For example, in the original text that we have, the passage ends at chapter 16, verse 8, where the women leave the tomb, trembling and afraid, and did not tell anyone. This is where the original manuscripts come to a halt. In Mark's narrative, he he doesn't need to go any further. The story is over. That's it. Everybody everybody reading during his time gets the message. But this didn't sit well with later scribes, where additional verses had to be concocted and added on. Verses 9 all the way through 20, that basically reads, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And then Jesus goes on to appear to two disciples. So verse 12, After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe him. Then we roll into the Great Commission. Then verse 14 reads, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of their heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he has risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on sick, And they will be recovered. Actually, there's two more. Verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Then 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. That's end quote. So this is quite the story that we have here. And it's such an obvious interpolation. It's a blatant forgery. And probably a production of the late fourth century. Or perhaps even later. What we see that Mark leaves out was never actually intended to be there in the first place. But this caused a problem for the growing Christian world as it monopolized the Roman Empire. As well as all of its provinces. But more importantly, the rest of the world... The author for Mark was merely making a statement for his readers. Where Matthew's Christianity is about the continuing growth of the church through proselytization, backed by the fear of eternal torture in hell. This message, too, had to be added to Mark's gospel to align itself with the message to future Christian readers. Now, because we have evidence that verses 9 through 20 were later added, this caused many scholars of theology to become very upset and eventually had to come to terms with it. Now keep in mind, these verses hold the get baptized and believe in Jesus or burn in hell line and go tell the whole world. You know, the Greek commission. So with all the cognitive dissonance one could muster, these apologetics solved the problem by simply saying, it was inspired by God for those forgers to add those verses on. Laugh out loud. But were there other endings to Mark? Oh, yes, there were. There's a long ending, which we just covered. But then there's a long ending, A, and a short ending as well. But there's a very long ending, which is actually a forgery inside of another forgery. Because the extended verses, 9 through 20, evidently still left one of these scribes feeling a little uneasy. He didn't like the way that the story ended. And he thought that it needed a little bit more. It just wasn't enough. So they interpolated their own forgery into that other forgery in verses 15 through 20. And it basically reads the same, but with some added text here. The disciples go and challenge Jesus to prove his righteousness because Satan might be trying to trick us. Now, they said these things to Christ, and Christ replied to them, in quotation, The term of the years of authority of Satan has been fulfilled, but other dreadful things are drawing near. Then Jesus goes on to say, For he has died for the sins of the wicked, and that the men who sin will follow the road of righteousness. Something along those lines, blah, 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 blah. Basically, just another regurgitation of the same gospel. So there's something revealing to us here in terms of what this interpolator was trying to tell his audience. And it also gives us some insight in terms of when the forgery potentially was added. It also might be equally as telling that the forger was in on Mark's dark comedy, literally about Titus killing Jews, and that Jesus potentially was Titus in his meaning. So the fact that he says, in quotation, the terms of the years for Satan has been fulfilled meaning literally the year 73 and the final battle between Titus and the rebels at Masada, which is Mark's actual conclusion. But this forger also goes on to say, in quotation, other dreadful things are drawing near. Now that we know history, historically two more Jewish-Roman wars ignited, where hundreds of thousands of Jews, as well as Roman citizens, were killed. The second Jewish-Roman War of 115 that lasted for two years, ending in 117. And then the final revolt and most devastating, led by Bar Kokba, from the year 132 to the 136. Now I believe, as do most other scholars, that both the author for the Gospel of John and this forger wrote after the Bar Kokba revolt as they both imply that another war is either imminent or happening at the time. And more unlikely, likely, this is the war that was happening at the time. Thus, we get the book of Revelation a few years after this final war, as, as they reflected in the battle between Jesus and the devil in some aerial sky battle. And then there's one more, then we'll make this the last one. In Mark 16, verse 3, Remember this one? It's where the two women are coming up to the tomb and they're questioning each other. Well, hey, who's going to roll away this big, heavy door from the tomb? Well, this scribe wanted to add a little bit of color. It wasn't enough. So he basically has the two women ascend up on a cloud with the angels after the tomb door is opened up. And that that blackened sky turned back to day. So that was all fun and pretty interesting right now keeping in mind everything that we just talked about everything that we've been talking about with the history of the messiahs the history of the religion that ultimately changed the world but why did some Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah well now that we have a better understanding of the history behind the political movements and the many different Jewish sects as well as Christian sects, we can actually see where there might be some reason to actually reject the idea of Jesus from Proto-Orthodox Christianity. And most Jews, not living in Rome, in fact did. In the 200 years that led up to the turn of the millennia, we had multiple Jewish factions, just like we do with Christianity. That were in, there were some that were enjoying the lifestyle of the Greeks, enjoying the culture. Then we had Jews who were attacking the temple. And they were critical of the temple because he didn't agree with the way that it was being run. Then we had Jews who were staging battles against the Roman occupiers that ultimately led to a series of bloody battles and all-out war with millions of dead. Then all of a sudden, under the rule of Vespasian and his sons, Titus and Domitian, we have a Jewish savior being talked about sometime in the mid-70s but lived and died 40 years earlier. And this Savior Messiah has a headquarters in Rome with leaders that have ultimate power. These stories, as you read them, were about a different kind of Jewish Savior, however. Not the one that the scriptures tells us about. We were expecting a militant Messiah coming back to take Israel and to destroy the enemy of the the chosen people. Kicking out the Romans, kicking out the Seleucids, not joining side by side and, you know, taking their hands and raising them in the air as the victors. Instead, we get this pacifistic, easygoing, peacekeeping, turn the other cheek and pay Caesar his taxes kind of guy. All stories told in secret parables that are taken from the works of Josephus, some of the works of Homer and some of some lost literature that we no longer have. So I think we need to consider these militant slash political works given to us, provided, hand-filled, from the Proto-Orthodox Christianity, from the Christian church to be written in a manner to subdue the Jews who still wanted war, who still wanted the Romans out of Judea. Out of some 40-plus Gospels that we know of and have in our current possession, paints many different versions of Jesus, the Jesuses, the Messiahs, what he was, how he got here, why he came in the first place, and a litany of other kind of different stories. But then we have four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, that tell all the same story but with different views on some matters, changing some scenes around, changing some names and characters and places, etc. But all surrounding one theme, blaming the Jews for the murder of Jesus Christ and the threat of hell for those who failed to accept his ways in his gospel. Is it possible that some certain political leaders in Rome helped influence some of these canonized gospels? Well, we know in fact that these emperors were involved in later centuries, identifying what books should go in and become canon, and which ones should be condemned as heretical and burned in massive fire heaps. So why not consider thinking that Vespasian who ruled Rome between 69 and 79, which is exactly when Mark was written, and then Matthew shortly after, perhaps many Jews of the first century caught on to some of this and simply didn't buy into it. Think about it. If you're a Jew from any one of these sects living in the mid to late 70s and were told that 40 years ago Jesus came and, and you missed him. But not only did you miss him, You rallied along with the Sanhedrin, the chief priest of the temple cult, to crucify him. So let's take a look. What are some of the reasons that Jews refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah, as told through New Testament Scripture? Now, number one, he did not fulfill the messianic prophecies, as told through Old Testament Scripture. And number two, Jesus did not embody the personal qualifications. the said messiah and number three biblical verses referring to jesus are all mistranslations and the number four jewish belief is based on a national revelation not this small isolated sectarian group of jews but first let's take a look at some background the word messiah it's an english rendering of the hebrew word messiah which means anointed and that usually refers to a person, person initiated into god's service by being anointed with the oil as such is seen in exodus twenty nine seven, one 1 kings 139 and 2 kings 9 3. now let's go through all four of these one by one and their description number one that jesus did not fulfill the messianic prophecies well what is the messiah supposed to have accomplished anyway Well, one of the central themes of biblical prophecy is the promise of a future age of perfection, characterized by universal peace and a recognition of the Jewish God, Yahweh. This is proclaimed in Isaiah 2, verses 1-4, 32, uh, verses 15-18, chapter 60, 15-18, Zephaniah 3, 9, Hosea 2, 20-22, Amos 9, 13-15, Micah chapter 4, 1-4, through four. Zechariah, chapter 8, 23, as well as 14, 9, and Jeremiah, 31, 33-34. But specifically, the Bible says that he will build the third temple, as seen in Ezekiel 37, 26-28. In Christianity, Jesus is the new temple and ultimately replaces the temple cult as well as the Jewish God, Yahweh. And then the next one, B, Gather all the Jews back to the land of Israel, as proclaimed in Isaiah 43, verses 5 to 6. According to the gospel writers, after, after the fall of the second temple and the persecution of the Jews and Christians in 75 AD, it appears that it would never happen again. And then C. Usher in an era of world peace and end all hatred, oppression, and suffering, and disease. As it says, nations shall not lift up a sword against nations, neither shall man learn war anymore. Isaiah 2.4 So this is very unlikely to happen. And then D. Spread universal knowledge of the God of Israel, which will unite humanity as one. As it says, God will be king over all the world. On that day, God will be one, and his name will be one as seen in Zechariah 14.9, written during a time of competing religions, of course, religions that were persecuting Jews. And if an individual fails to fulfill even one of these conditions, he cannot be the Jewish Messiah. And because no one has ever fulfilled any of the Bible's descriptions of this future king, Jews still continue to wait for the coming of the Messiah. And all past messianic claims including Jesus of Nazareth, and Bar Kokhba, and Shabbat Yitzhi have been rejected. And then Christians will counter that, hey, Jesus will fulfill these, but in the second coming. Well, Jewish sources show that the Messiah will fulfill these prophecies outright. In the Bible, there is no concept whatsoever of a second coming. And if you followed along in the episodes that we talked about, especially with breaking down Mark, And taking a look at the comparison between Josephus' wars of the Jews, Jesus already came back at the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, number two, Jesus did not embody the personal qualifications of the Messiah. Now, this breaks down into three pieces, A, B, C. So, A, Messiah as a prophet. The Messiah will become the greatest prophet in history, second only to that of Moses. And we know that the um, New Testament authors strive to replace Moses with Jesus, right? So prophecy can only exist in Israel when the land is inhabited by the majority of the world's Jews. A situation which hasn't existed since 300 BCE during the Alexandrian period. During the time of Ezra, when the majority of the Jews remained in Babylon. Prophecy ended upon the death of the last prophets of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And Jesus appeared on the scene approximately 350 years after the prophecy had ended. Thus could not be a prophet after that. And B, the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. Now, many prophetic passages speak of a descendant of the King David who will rule Israel during the age of perfection, specifically in Psalms 132, but also in Isaiah 11, 1-9. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, 30, through 10, 33, 14 through 16, as well as Ezekiel 34, 11 through 31, 37, 21 through 28, and last but not least, in Hosea 3, verses 4 through 5. Unfortunately, King David's son, who would be the heir to take the throne, was actually killed, so the prophecy was actually unsuccessful. But Matthew picked up on this and created a virgin birth with the lineage connected to David, through God. Additionally, the Messiah must be descended on his father's side from King David. See Genesis 49.10, Isaiah 11.1, Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.17, as well as Ezekiel 34.23-24. According to the Christian claim, Jesus was the product of a virgin birth, and he had no father. Therefore, he could not possibly have fulfilled the messianic requirement of being the descendant of his father, especially of King David. According to Jewish tradition, the Messiah will actually be born of human parents by way of intercourse and possess normal physical attributes just like other people, grow up as a child into an adult. He won't be a supernatural hero, a superhero, a superman, a spider-man kind of guy. He won't be able to heal anybody or walk on water? Any of these things that the New Testament authors conjured up? So let's talk about this for a moment. Mark does make a reference to Jesus having a mother named Mary, but never once gives him a father, let alone a guy named Joseph. Now we understand the invention of Mary and where and why this author came up with it. Additionally, if we didn't talk about it before, the name Mary Marys were a term that were used for women who were fighting against Roman occupation. Literally means female rebel. And it is even more interesting when you look at it and you think about what you read in the Gospels. That Mark even employs so many Marys in his narrative. Marys in his Jesus story including at his crucifixion as well as at his tomb. Female rebels were arriving at his crucifixion and and at his tomb tomb and then those jewish female rebels left the empty tomb shaking and told no one in mark's narrative one might imagine that mark was saying that the jewish rebels went to see him and confirmed that the body of the dead god of the jews was truly dead only to find that he had escaped i believe that in mark's mind this was the message that was coming This was the message that the Jewish God was coming for them in some sense, and that they had better watch their backs. That was Mark's message anyway, not all of this Ascension and Great Commission crap. He literally wanted the rebelling Jews of the future to be afraid of their own shadows. And then the last one, C. The Jewish Messiah will be Torah observant, unlike unlike Paul and Mark's Messiah. The Messiah will lead the Jewish people to full Torah observance. The Torah states that all mitzvot remain binding forever. And anyone coming to change the Torah is immediately identified as a false prophet. As seen in Deuteronomy 13, 1-4. And then all throughout the Christian New Testament, Jesus continuously contradicts the Torah observance. And states that its commandments are no longer applicable. Then we move on to number three, with the infamous mistranslated verses referring to Jesus. Now remember, biblical verses can only be understood by studying the original Hebrew text, which reveals many discrepancies in the Christian translation. Now, the first one we'll talk about, and we've already covered it a little bit, was the virgin birth. The, I, the Christian idea of a virgin giving birth, which is derived from Isaiah 7.14, which Mark kind of used, and then Matthew employed it altogether with greater details, basically describing an Alma as giving birth. But the word Alma has always meant, in Hebrew, just a young woman, not a pure woman. That word is different altogether, and we talked about it. But the Christian theologians during the time came centuries later and translated it as the word virgin. This accords Jesus' birth with the first century pagan idea of mortals being impregnated by gods, such as Hercules, right? Then Matthew, who was our second gospel writer to be canonized, writes sometime between 80 and 85, perhaps even later. And then Luke, the third gospel to be canonized between that 90 and 95. Remember, they're the only two writers to talk about the virgin birth narrative taken from Isaiah. Now let's go back a little bit further. When this writer in Isaiah is referring to Alma, he's actually not talking about a um, young girl. He's talking about Israel as a young nation. And also scholars can detect this because there's some 11 verses preceding this Alma text that is referring to Israel over and over and over again. And as we talked about from the very first episode of season one, we know that the Jews constantly used names to refer to groups of people, places, nations, what have you. So this is not unusual. It was misused in the context. But the most important one of all is the second one, the suffering servant. You've heard me talk about this one all throughout this podcast, right? So Christianity claims that Isaiah 53 refers to Jesus as the suffering servant. But in actuality, Isaiah 53 directly follows the theme of chapter 52, describing the exile and redemption of the Jewish people. Their prophecies are written in the singular form because the Jews, representing Israel, are regarded as one unit. Throughout Jewish scripture, Israel is repeatedly called in the singular, the servant of God. See Isaiah 43 8. In fact, Isaiah states no less than 11 times in the chapters prior to 53 that the servant of God is, in fact, Israel. But when read correctly, Isaiah 53 clearly and ironically refers to the Jewish people being bruised, crushed, and as sheep brought to slaughter at the hands of the nations of the world. These descriptions are used throughout the Jewish scripture to graphically describe the suffering of the Jewish people. As seen in Psalms 44, as we surveyed earlier, the bruised and battered Jews at the hands of Antiochus, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and of course, the Roman emperors. Isaiah 53 concludes that when the Jewish people are redeemed, the nations will recognize and accept the responsibility for the inordinate suffering and death of the Jews. Now, on the other hand, scholars also believe And I'm in alignment with this, that there's a double meaning to this, that Isaiah 53 isn't only talking about Israel. It is also talking about the suffering servant being Onias III. Do you remember we talked about Onias III in earlier episodes? Onias was the high priest by birthright over the second temple during the Hellenized period. Right around that 164, during the time of the Antiochian crisis. Do you recall that going on? This is a very important piece of Jewish history. Led to the Maccabean revolt, right? It's everything that Hanukkah is all about. But Onias III is the one priest that tried to bring Torah observance, God, Yahweh, back to the temple. And move out and eradicate the Seleucids that had infiltrated the temple, bringing in busts and statues of Zeus and other um, Seleucid type of um, statues and artwork within the temple, as well as its culture and, its, and those Greek ways. Well, Ananias did everything that he could to try to bring this back in, only to be bruised, battered, turned in, accused, falsely accused, and ultimately murdered By his fellow men. That is the suffering servant that was trying to bring God back. And then number four. Jewish belief is based solely on national revelation. Throughout history, thousands of religions have been started by individuals attempting to convince people that he or she is God's true prophet. But personal revelation is an extremely weak basis for a religion because one can never know if it is indeed true or not. Since others did not hear God speak to this person, they have to take his word for it. You just have to believe him, like Paul, right? Even if the individual claiming personal revelation performs miracles, they do not prefer that he is a genuine prophet. All the miracles show assuming they are genuine, is that he has certain powers. That's it. It has nothing to do with this claim of prophecy. Now, Judaism, unique among all of the world's major religions, does not rely on claims of miracles as the basis for the religions. In fact, the Bible says that God sometimes grants the power of miracles to charlatans in order to test the Jewish loyalty to the Torah. Let's see that in Deuteronomy 13.4. But of the thousands of religions in human history, only Judaism bases its belief on national revelation. For example, God speaking to the entire nation is what that means. If God is going to start a religion, it makes sense that he'll tell everyone, not just one person, like Paul, which never happens. In fact, in Jewish tradition, the Jews did not believe in Moses, the teacher, because of the miracles he was performing. Whenever anyone's belief is based on seeing miracles, he has lingering doubts, because it is possible that the miracles were performed through the magic or or through sorcery. All of the miracles performed by Moses in the desert were because they were necessary, not as proof of his prophecy, according to Jewish tradition. So what then was the basis of Jewish belief? The revelation at Mount Sinai, Which we saw with our own eyes and heard with our own ears, not dependent on testimony of others, as it says. Face to face, God spoke with you. The Torah also states, God did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, who are here and alive today. Anyway, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 3. So Judaism is not miracles. It is not about miracles. That's sorcery. It's magic. It is the personal eyewitness experience of every man, woman, and child standing at Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago. Now, as you can imagine, along with this Jewish response, there are, of course, Christian apologetics that have their own arguments. And here's what they are. Number one, in response, it is claimed that Joseph adopted Jesus and passed on his genealogy via adoption. But there are two problems with this claim of adoption. There is no biblical basis for the idea of a father passing on his tribal line by adoption. It's written nowhere. It's made up. A priest who adopts a son from another tribe cannot make him a priest by adoption, for example. And then B. Joseph could never pass on by adoption that which he doesn't have. Because Joseph descended from the line of Jeconiah. Matthew says it straight up in chapter 1, verse 11, as he fell under the curse of that king that none of his descendants could ever sit as king upon the throne of David. Secure that with Jeremiah twenty-two thirty, 30, as well as thirty-six thirty. But the desperate Christian response to this difficult problem is this. Apologists claim that Jesus traces himself back to King David through his mother Mary, who allegedly descends from King David, as shown in the third chapter of Luke. But there are four basic problems with this claim. So number one, there's no evidence anywhere that Mary descends from the line of King David. The third chapter of Luke traces Joseph's genealogy, not Mary's. And then B, even if Mary can trace herself back to King David, that doesn't help Jesus since tribal affiliations goes only through the father, not the mother. See, numbers Chapter 1 verse 18, as well as Ezra, chapter 2, verse 59. And then see, even if family line could go through the mother, Mary was not from a legitimate messianic family. According to the Bible, the Messiah must be a descendant of David through his son Solomon. See 2 Samuel 7:14, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14 as well as 22, 9-10, and 28, 4-6. The third chapter of Luke is therefore irrelevant to this discussion because it describes lineage of David's son, Nathan, not Solomon. As seen in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. So there's some major problems with this theory. And then D, in Luke chapter 3, verse 27, it lists Sheetil and Zerubbabel in his genealogy. Now these two also appear in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, as descendants of the cursed Jeconiah, who we just talked about. So if Mary descends from them, it would also disqualify her from being a messianic ancestor, right? Alright everybody, that's it. I'm bringing this episode to a close, and I certainly hope you found it fun, exciting, and interesting, and maybe even funny. But I hope that it helps you in your search. I hope that it helps you dig deeper. And I hope that it helps you in your analytical skills, especially your epistemology, that the tools in your toolbox that you use to figure things out, right? In in terms of looking at the scripture and becoming critical about it and trying to understand the history behind it, because it is a rich history and it's an interesting history. and. History is what helps us learn how to not mix, make mistakes in the future, right? That's my role here. That's what we're doing. I'm learning as we go as well. And I hope that you find this fascinating. So guys, this is it. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday. And I'll be with you sometime after Christmas, sometime into 2022. So I think this is a great way to end the year. And we're coming back with some fascinating topics It's going to be my favorite one, probably, of the entire podcast combined. Guys, peace out. Love you. And I hope that you love me back. (laughs) And if nothing else, be good humans. And hey, to the folks who have been sending me DMs, asking me for the essay, I hope that you enjoy it. And um, let's keep talking about it. Take care, everybody. Hasta luego.